Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, today covering how our Christian worship sustains our catechetical life. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, as we bring you back here today, continuing this series, just a couple episodes left in this series. These last two episodes are going to be on that same theme that I just set up about how our divine service, our worship life, our liturgy, whatever terms, and we're going to let you explain all of that here in a second uh, and how those all fit in together and how we rightly understand those things. But those terms that we use, how our worship life really informs and is connected to the catechetical baptized life that we live out as everyday Christians. And so as we're taking that approach then here with these two episodes, these last two episodes in this Catechized Life series, obviously then we are not going to be working straight out of the catechism as we have for the rest of this. This whole series has been a series of catechetical lessons. And as we do when we do this in our parishes and so forth, of course, we work with the text of Luther's small catechism. However, you had presented this to me when we were talking about this series and what we wanted to do with it, and you said this is something that you do in your catechesis in your parish. I do something very similar as well. And I said, yeah, I think this is really important to include in this series. So I'm really pleased to have this here. But it's going to be a little different as, again, we don't quite have a text to follow per se, but we're definitely going to see how the catechism both influences what we do in worship, but then, of course, also sustains us in our catechized life. And so uh, as we get going here, then, why don't you go ahead and give us some of those connections and identification of some of those terms? And maybe I'll just start with this simple question. When we say worship, our Christian worship, well, what is that? What is worship? Go ahead and take us away here, Pastor Bestel. That's a great starting point, Sean, because the word worship is so frequently used in our English vocabulary to understand this relationship between God and man and how it plays out, certainly in the divine service, but also even in matters of daily life. But that English word isn't perhaps the most helpful understanding, especially with the Old English roots of the word. The word worship comes from the Old English which back 400 years ago or whenever uh, that word came around, basically it meant at the time to deem one worthy. And that always sort of raised the question in my mind, 
as one and trying to teach this word and this concept of worship, who is the one deeming worthy? If I am the one deeming God worthy of my worship, then in many ways I've placed myself as God above God. At the same time, if God is deeming me worthy of worship, then I'm in a sense justifying myself by my worship and I don't need Christ. It sort of puts Christ off to the sideline. And so that English word worship, as much as we use it, as commonly as we use it, and it's not wrong to use it, but it's perhaps it needs a little bit better depth of understanding as to what we as Lutherans actually mean when we use this word worship, because it's used in many different ways by many different church bodies, especially in our American context. In the American context, I think a lot of people mean that the word worship means to praise God, to offer up our praises, to show him how much we love him, that type of understanding. So I always like to begin by saying, let's define this carefully, because this is going to help us understand how our understanding of what is happening on Sunday morning, and even understand, even honestly, what is happening during the week as we use some of the prayer offices like matins and vespers and evening prayer and morning prayer, even that understanding is going to be far different once we understand this word worship to be perhaps not be the best explanation of what we have from the original languages. So in the New Testament, there are three terms that sort of capture at least the New Testament's understanding or a description of what we call worship in the English. And one term dominates those. And maybe we've mentioned this in passing in previous episodes, but it's this word proskuneo. Proskuneo is the word that is far more often used than any other term in the New Testament to refer to worship. And that word proskuneo is a very ancient word. It's sort of a compound word divided into two more basic words, the pros meaning to go to or toward, and then the root word kaneo either is something that an old word from which we get the word canine, like to dog towards someone, to beg like a dog begs, or it comes from an ancient Greek word that means to kiss the ring of the master. Either one of those works, and together they work sort of well and that we beg like dogs, we know our place, we kiss the ring of the master and say we are not worthy, and yet we beg with confidence because our God is a God of love. So that word proskuneo is a very fitting word. It comes up repeatedly in the scriptures and in the gospels, and importantly, Jesus never refuses it. So there are a couple important places where it comes up. And I think we even talked about this when we talked about the two natures of Christ way back when we talked about the Apostles' Creed. But just as review, Matthew chapter 2, the wise men proskuneo before the Christ child, and he does not refuse the worship. Matthew chapter 14, those who are in the boat and they see Jesus calm the storm, they proskuneo before him. And again, he does not refuse the worship. Matthew 28, as he's getting ready, as he calls his disciples to the mountain and and we assume he's getting ready, therefore, to ascend into heaven. They proskuneo, and he does not refuse the worship. So as we take this posture of begging, of kissing the ring of the master, Jesus does not refuse that, but rather this becomes sort of the dominant view of our role in worship. Our role is not to impress him. Our role is not to say, look, God, look how much I'm doing for you, look how faithful I am, but rather it is to understand that though we do not deserve this great honor to be in his presence, nevertheless, by his grace, he has 
not only allowed us into his presence, but he has called us by the Holy Spirit. He has gathered us into his presence for the specific purpose of caring for us, and therefore we beg like dogs. The second word in the Greek that talks about, or that we translate worship, is the word latreia. And it's a word that doesn't come up nearly as often. Proskuneo comes up something like 50 times in the Greek. Latreia comes up just a handful of times. And probably the most prominent one is in Romans chapter 12, when in Romans chapter 12, Paul appeals to his hearers and he, and he you know, says, offer your bodies up as a living sacrifice, for this is your spiritual worship. And there is the word latreia on there. Well, when does that happen? That doesn't happen on a Sunday morning. That happens in our daily lives during the week. And if you look at the layout of Romans and, and Romans chapter 12, you see that Paul is turning their attention to the question of how then shall we live our daily life? Well, we live our daily life by offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is our spiritual worship. So if we want to live with faith in God and fervent love toward one another, then that aspect, if you will, of our worship does flow out into daily life, but that is not the defining moment or the defining characteristic of Sunday morning. The third word in the Greek is the word sebamai, and it has a couple different forms that if we wanted to get technical here, we could get into these. But the most well-known place perhaps is in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus chastises some of the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and and he says, you know, in vain do they worship me. Uh, and there the word sebamai sort of means to be impressed by, to revere at a distance, you know, sort of trying to, in a sense, keep the law as a way of worshiping God. Uh, but they are impressed by him and therefore want to show him their great faith. And so uh, that one only comes up a few times, about the same number of times as the word latreon. And both of those they pale in comparison to the number of times we see this proskuneo. So as proskuneo dominates on Sunday morning, then our spiritual worship is carried out in the week as we live lives of faith in God and fervent love toward one another. Again, that might be Romans 12, but here's where we start to get the hint of the catechism. Because think about that. If our lives are lived out during the week, and that is our spiritual worship, then the catechism sort of trains us and teaches us by its layout what to expect of Sunday morning into daily life. And we'll see this as we get through this discussion on worship. We'll see how the two pillars of the divine service and of the idea of us coming as beggars before God, those two pillars are the service of the word and the service of the sacrament. Well, think about the catechism and think about how section one, as we've studied in detail now, section one is the first half of it, the first three of the six chief parts are all about the service of the word, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer. There is the law and the gospel as it is then taught and instructed to us in the Lord's Prayer how to live out in daily life. So there is the doctrine. There is the word of God. As Luther even comments in the large catechism when he gets done with those three and he says, now we have covered all the basic tenets of the Christian faith, the doctrine of the Christian faith in these three chief parts. So if the first three chief parts are the service of the word, the second three chief parts, they remind us of the sacrament, right? And they remind us that God not only teaches us, but he also provides for us, bestows upon us, shares with us the mysteries of his grace. There's the sacramental life. And so you have the service of the word and the service of the sacrament. Those two put together on Sunday morning, 
yield what we have at the end of the divine service, which is that post-communion prayer attributed to Luther, in which he says that through this sacrament, we pray that it would strengthen us for faith in you and fervent love toward one another. There now it is carrying us out into the week. So we understand where as we come on Sunday morning begging like dogs, because as Luther once said, God fills you up on Sunday morning with all of his good things. He fills your sack up on Sunday morning. You carry it out into the week. You spend it on the whole week ahead. You spend it on caring for loved ones. You spend it on temptation. You spend it on the strengthening of faith and the sustaining of faith that you need during the week. And then you come again on Sunday morning empty. Your bag is empty and it needs to be refilled. And that is the whole point of Sunday morning. Sunday morning is not the time to uh, have this great service of mission outreach for those who have never heard of Christ. It is the time for the, if you will, the insiders to be fed, strengthened, sustained, forgiven, renewed, that they might then go back out into the week and into daily life for the benefit of a world that does not know Christ. So, Here you see how the catechetical repetition of this already is impacting our understanding of worship, that the spiritual worship is carried out in the week as we live lives of faith in God, fervent love toward one another, but that needs to be informed and taught and strengthened on Sunday morning through the forgiveness of sins. There's our clear conscience before God and the strength that comes therein by the Holy Spirit's work as he sanctifies and keeps us with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. Isn't that the exact phrase that we hear in the explanation of the third article of the creed? This is what the Holy Spirit is doing when he gathers his church together. He is gathering it together to sanctify and keep it and strengthen it with Jesus Christ. So this helps us understand all of our posture in the Sunday service, one of beggar, one of recipient, the student and at the feet of, and as a beneficiary at the table of Jesus. Uh, In fact, that's sort of a good reminder of the basic nature we see or the basic pattern we see all throughout the New Testament of how Jesus cares for his people, that he teaches them and then he dines with them, right? We see that especially in the book of Luke and uh, Arthur Just in one of his books, Heaven on Earth, does a wonderful job of pointing this out all throughout the Gospel of Luke in how Jesus loves to teach and have table fellowship with those people that he loves. And so here we have each and every Sunday morning, we have the teaching and we have the table fellowship. In fact, there are sort of two scriptural accounts that I often will point people to and say, these two accounts, especially when seen together, perhaps best illustrate what Sunday morning is really all about. They're the accounts of Mary and Martha and the account of the Canaanite woman. Think of Mary's account and how that illustrates our posture in the service of the Word, right? So in Mary's account, while Martha is busy wanting to do things for Jesus, that Jesus says, no, Martha, stop. Don't be upset with Mary. What Mary has chosen is the best part, just to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen and to receive his holy Word and his right teaching. This is the joy of the Christian in the service of the Word. You know, this is why it sort of it seems like an odd argument to me when people are arguing about what involvement the laity get in the service of the Word. You know, uh, who gets to read the readings and who gets to do this and who gets to do that? And you just stop and you say, well, wait a second here. What is the point of the service of the Word? Is the point of the service of the Word for us to be active participants like Martha and show God how much we love him and want to host him? 
Or is the point of the service of the word to just soak in and take in what Christ has for us, to just rejoice at being at the feet of Jesus? One of the beautiful hymns in our Lutheran service book, in our hymnal, is that hymn, One Thing's Needful, Lord, This Treasure. And that hymn, I believe it's 536 in our hymnal. And that hymn teaches, or and it even illustrates in verse 2, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and just soaking in and taking in the one thing needful, that Christ would give us his holy word and would therein give us the law, give us the gospel, teach us how to apply that to daily life. Well, there's the catechism, right? There's the Ten Commandments, there's the Creed, there's the Lord's Prayer, as we've studied all throughout now these last six months or so. And then that Canaanite woman's account, as I mentioned before, that well illustrates our understanding of the sacrament. What account am I talking about? Remember, there's that situation in which the woman is begging Christ to help, and Jesus replies, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And she replies, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What a great response of faith. Uh, And it sort of even evokes from Christ this joy in her great faith. And that is the Lutheran understanding of the service of the sacrament, that we, though beggars all, as Luther is attributed as saying at death, though we are beggars all, we have this great opportunity to eat that which falls from the table of Christ. And more than that, we don't just eat the crumbs that fall from the table, but as we said earlier, we are actually beneficiaries with a seat reserved at the table of Christ. This is our joy as the baptized. This is our privilege and right, if you will, as the royal priesthood. And if you, you know, as the hearers have time, if you read through the book of Hebrews and you see how much the emphasis on the book of Hebrews is about this right of ours as the royal priesthood to take part in all of these divine things that we now have this great high priest who gives us access to these beautiful things of God, these mysteries of God that the, um, in a sense, the common people do not have access to, but only the priests. And yet we now all all of the baptized are now priests. It's not just reserved for a special class, as in the Old Testament might argue it was just reserved for a special class, namely the priests. We are now all priests by reason of our baptism, and in the inheritance of our baptism, we have all of these great benefits of Christ Jesus. And then if there is one scene in the scripture, so you've got, on the one hand, you've got Mary and Martha for the service of the word, then you've also got the woman who in great faith says that even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. There's that idea again of proskuneo, right? Begging like a dog, begging in confidence that the Lord hears and, and will be faithful in providing for us. And there's a beautiful illustration of the beggarly status that is ours, but a beggarly confidence that is ours in the service of the sacrament and the divine service. Then if there's one scene that combines those two accounts into one, I think it's the feeding of the 5,000. And I don't think that it's coincidental that this is the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. Think of the details of it. One, you have Jesus look upon the the great masses, and he has this gut-wrenching compassion for them. For as at least one of the Gospel writers says, for they are as sheep without a shepherd. Right? This is one of the great joys of Good Shepherd Sunday and some of the other opportunities to think about what it means that Jesus is Good Shepherd of the sheep, that the care of the sheepfold is not 100% dependent upon the under-shepherd. Paul even writes to Timothy about this when he's trying to encourage Timothy to stand fast and be strong in the faith, and you know, sort of reminds Timothy that the under-shepherds 
they have something and you know they have the good deposit entrusted to them and yet they themselves are cared for by the good shepherd and and he uses language there in second timothy one that sort of hints at this and so what a comforting image for the people of god to know that we have jesus who is this good shepherd who cares for his sheep yes through the hands of under shepherds and that's where this feeding of the five thousand this miracle really illustrates this for us. He sees the masses, he has gut-wrenching compassion upon them, and then he sits them down, right? He teaches them, he teaches, he spends all day teaching them, service of the word, and he sits them down in groups, and the gospel writers even talk about the idea of groups of 70 to 100 or so, which, again, not every sanctuary looks exactly like that, but how many of our sanctuaries throughout the land sort of visualize that same reality just by the number of people that come together per service. You know, at least at, in my congregation in Calvary, each service has roughly 85 people in it or so. Other congregations might have 40 or 50 or so. And the gospel writers actually enumerate this, that Jesus sets them down in these small groups that they could be cared for. So this sort of theology of glory that says the best church is the one that is just packed to the gills with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people so that they're sort of lost in the great number. Well, how can you provide pastoral care for that? How can you care for the people as sheep, dear sheep of the Good Shepherd, if you don't notice them because they're lost in the crowd? And so Jesus separates them out into manageable groups, and then he assigns, this going back to the feeding of the 5,000, then he assigns his under-shepherds in a sense, to care for them. And he does it miraculously through this feeding of them. And they all rejoice over the great fill that is theirs by the miraculous work of Christ Jesus. If that doesn't remind us, at least, it might not be exactly bread and wine, but my goodness, if that doesn't remind us at least of the sacrament and therefore of the whole quote-unquote worship life of the church in being cared for by Jesus, what could those crowds offer him that day? They had nothing to offer. They came not with something to offer saying, look, look, Jesus, look how much we love you. Uh, Look what we can do for you. Let us set up a divine hour of worship in which we really please you and let you sit back and just enjoy our great worship. That's not at all the image there, but rather the image is one in which Jesus says, these people need my help. They need my care. They need me to care for them as a good shepherd, and I will do it by teaching them and by feeding them. And therefore, that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is a wonderful illustration that combines, I think, in many ways, our understanding of the service of the Word and the service of the sacrament. So already, by referring to these things and mimicking them, we are already echoing back, and here's that catechetical language again, we are already echoing back what we have heard. And that's not just us deciding to use the Scriptures this way, but it is by God's own design. Notice the very intended echoes that he builds into the handing down of right worship. And we see this described actually in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 8, there's a a really interesting verse there that might sound sort of cryptic at first, and the more that you read it and digest it, the more you understand exactly what it's getting at. But the verse reads this way. It says of the Old Testament priests, it says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now that pattern that was shown them, the copy that they have of the heavenly blueprint. So notice that language, 
God in the heavens has this understanding of how he wants worship to be. He gives a copy of that to the Old Testament. And he says, you know what, here's my blueprint. Here's how I want you to do it. And he sets up for them the whole Old Testament pattern of worship through what we know as the tabernacle. And and in that sort of the service of the sacrament being foreshadowed, the service of the word also in their love of the uh, reading of the word and the prophets and the Torah. Uh, And as we have all of that established as a copy of the heavenly blueprint, then Hebrews goes on to say, basically, and I'm summarizing here, we now have the real thing, right? We have this in flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. And therefore we are no, you know, we are not striving to go back to the Old Testament, but the Old Testament, you might even say, would sort of be jealous of or eager for what we now have in the divine service where everything has come to its fruition, everything has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And therefore what we are echoing, uh, again, sort of catechetical language there, what we are echoing is this covenant long reality from Old Testament through New Testament reality of God saying, here is my blueprint of worship. Yes, Old Testament, you're going to look forward to it, so I'll give you a copy of it. But New Testament, you're gonna have the real thing. And therefore, what does Jesus say as he institutes the meal of the New Testament? This is the New Testament, right? This cup is the New Testament. It doesn't just signify it. It doesn't just represent it. Here is the New Testament in my blood. And so what joy we have in all of this echoing off of each other in many ways and just sort of reverberating throughout the ages and now coming to fulfillment in what we get to partake in every Sunday morning. And that's why for the following hour and a half here, We'll look at all of these details, both in the last half of this conversation and then in next week's as well. We'll look at all of these details of the liturgy itself and how all of this teaches us this great pattern. And by the way, that pattern, that idea of pattern is not only found in the Old Testament, but remember what Paul says to Timothy when he encourages Timothy. This is, again, in 2 Timothy 1, he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have received from me. Notice not just follow sound words and as long as you're good at theology, then do whatever you want to do. And that's the danger we get into in our day and age is people say, well, we can all have a whole bunch of different ways of doing things. And as long as theologically we're right, then who cares? Well, there is certainly Christian freedom. We're not liturgical legalists. There is Christian freedom, but that Christian freedom does not rejoice in chaos because God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of good order. And therefore, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy not just to follow the sound words, but follow the pattern of sound words. Just as we hand down the faith once delivered to the saints, so also each generation hands down, in a sense, the pattern that has been established for us by God himself. And we can say that quite truthfully, based on the book of Hebrews there, that God himself has said, here is the pattern I have established through the copies that the Old Testament in its foreshadowing confessed of that great heavenly blueprint. And that heavenly blueprint is now manifest and flesh and blood in Christ Jesus and in his divine service as good shepherd to his people. Well, as you've set up there for us, you've already given us where we're going to go in both the second half of this episode here today but also next week looking forward. And so we'll go ahead and take a break here. But when we come back, then we will dig into the liturgy itself and try to understand how it echoes back to us 
that truth of God's word as you've laid that foundation there so well for us. As our catechist, Pastor Mark Vestal, I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Concord Matters as we continue our Catechized Life series with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And Pastor Bestel, you set up for us in the first segment of today's episode, this foundation of what worship is, what we're talking about, where we see that come through in scripture. Great foundation that you laid for us there. And so uh, as we talked about, we want to see this play out in our worship life together, in the liturgy, the divine service that we have as a church. And then we'll also continue to see how this then influences how we live our catechized life, our daily Christian life as baptized people of God. And so uh, as we get into this, then let's go ahead and dig into the liturgy itself and begin to understand how this echoes back that truth of God's word. So go ahead and take us away there, Pastor Bestel. Sure. As we dig into the liturgy, I like to start by actually defining the term liturgy. There's a lot that could be said on these topics, by the way, and, and probably I should take a step back for a quick second and point out to the hearer that what you and I are talking about here today about the liturgy is not at all, if you will, a view that is unique to us or is unique to 21st century Lutherans who are trying to defend the liturgy from the quote-unquote contemporary movement. That's not true at all. There are plenty of wonderfully rich liturgical resources that go through and study the history of the liturgy. And, and as we get into the liturgy and the specific details of what we refer to as the liturgy in the divine service, we'll see just how historic is this treasure that is ours and, and why Lutherans should love it for its historic use and not sort of divide into these angry battles over, uh, well, you just love the liturgy because you like to be high church or you don't love the liturgy because you want contemporary, but rather there's a deep theology that all of this conversation is rooted on. And there's some great resources put out by CPH and by others uh, authors' names. I already mentioned just, but authors' names like Lochner, a great book that CPH, I believe, just published called The Chief Divine Service, uh, Lang, Brower, Lutheran Worship History and Practice is a book that was put out in the 80s. There's another one out there that I believe was self-published or published by, uh, not by CPH, but is a great book by Dan Bragge called Eating God's Sacrifice. There's some wonderful materials. There's just resource after resource after resource to show us that this has been a very carefully studied topic. And the reason I mention that is because when we look at the American context around us, people see many different American evangelical type churches in which the pastor is constantly changing everything so that the worship of the congregation can be called new every week as if it's newly thought up every week. That's not us as confessional Lutherans, right? We want to echo back what the church has always confessed because 
it's rooted in a doctrine of Christ Jesus and, and the theology of Christ Jesus because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and because his promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, those who are found in him simply desire to confess the same thing yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we get into the liturgy in detail, this is a beautiful foundation on which to build, that this has been very carefully studied throughout the ages to say, how does the church properly confess this richness of God literally handing to us the word and the sacraments and saying, this is how Christ is going to sustain you. This is the promise of my New Testament to you. So first we need to define the term liturgy. This is a more generic term than what people think. It comes from a Greek word, liturgia, that refers to one obligating himself to care for the many. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like Christ caring for for example, the feeding of the 5,000, or as we know it, Christ caring for his church. Just as we hear Jesus say in the Gospels, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Notice how that immediately turns on its head any notion of worship that would be about us serving God and saying, look, look, God, look what I'm doing for you. And Jesus says, that's not why I came. I did not come so that I could sit back and be impressed by you but rather I came so that I could care for my church, so that I could save her and I could serve her. And that mentality, that divine truth and comfort is what defines our understanding of quote-unquote worship. So the term liturgy, specifically in our use of the church, really refers to everything that is said and done in liturgical worship, and it basically means that everything done in liturgical worship is to focus on and benefit from Christ serving his church. So the church is always speaking or chanting liturgically as if it is its own language. Think about how, you know, people from England speak English, people from China speak Chinese, people from Russia speak Russian. The church, in a sense, has its own culture because it is not of this world. Now, it brings into itself all worldly cultures, but by definition, that means it goes beyond worldly cultures, and therefore, it has its own language. And I, I like to jokingly say that our language is liturgish. Everything about the language of the church is constantly confessing that Christ has obligated himself not only to die for sins, but then also to bestow those gifts upon his church in a well-ordered manner that he has set out through the Holy Word and the distribution of his sacraments. And so as he knows that all of these benefits of the cross are going to pour out into the church, he does it through a very well-ordered way, which is why we have, for example, stewards of the mysteries of God. Why do you have a steward and a keeper of the goods and one who makes sure that the goods are being handed out carefully if everything is just sort of thrown out there randomly? That's not our God. Our God is a God of good order, and that includes good order in how he's going to care for his church in the divine service, in his divine service to us. This is why we refer to it as the divine service, right? Because it is him divinely serving us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve his divine service. From the German, you know, people like to quote the word Godestinst, God's service to his people. And this certainly is true of the Sunday morning divine service, that this is not about us first and foremost coming to praise God, though that secondarily is included in there. 
certainly there are portions of the divine service in which we offer up our praises and thanksgiving and our petitions. And yet that's not the main focus point. The main focal point of the service and the strength of the service, if you will, the life of the service is what Christ gives to us, not what we give to him. You might even say it this way, and we brought these terms up in the past, is the church service primarily sacrificial or is it primarily sacramental? Because remember, a sacrifice by definition is always what man offers up to God, whereas a sacrament always is what God gives to man. And so though the divine service includes portions of sacrifice, sacrifices of thanksgiving, nevertheless, primarily it is sacramental. It is God giving to his church, God's service, Christ's divine service to his people. And so the church is always speaking and chanting liturgically its own language with this liturgish, this otherworldly language, its own culture, its own customs that confesses the truth for the benefit of the faithful in this world, right? As Jesus says, that his church, his faithful, though they are in the world, they are not of the world. And therefore, why would we expect our worship to be worldly? Rather than allowing the world to define our worship, our worship is going to be defined by God's promises, and it's going to then carry customs and language that confess and echo back God's promises to him. So just as any worldly gatherings are for the benefit of those who understand them, so also you can say that the liturgy is primarily for insiders, for those who understand it, for the benefit of the church. Again, that doesn't mean that outsiders are unwelcome to learn and discover and rejoice in the liturgy and the divine service. But what it does mean is that just as other worldly gatherings are for those who are insiders, so also would we expect that Christ says, no, my divine service is for my church. And then the world may benefit by us calling people out of the world and into the life of the church, not by saying to the life of the church, why don't you become like the world out there? But rather, as Luther says in his flood prayer, that we rejoice that this little one who's been baptized can be kept safe and secure in the holy ark that is the Christian church, being separated from the multitude of unbelievers in the life of the church. So when we desire the divine service to be quote-unquote missional, what we are really desiring is to say, let us bring people from the world into the life of the church and catechize them and teach them and instruct them and assimilate them into the church rather than have the church assimilated into the world. We sort of have examples for us through the children of Israel. When the children of Israel remained faithful, then they had all of God's blessings and gifts. But when they wanted to be like other nations, And when they wanted to be worldly, then, well, what do we know about the northern ten tribes? Are they not sometimes referred to as the lost tribes because they were literally assimilated into the cultures and lost forever, wiped off the face of the map because they just look and sound like everybody else? But in the life of the church, God sets apart his church and says, I'm going to serve you, and then I'm going to send you back out into the world. And that is our spiritual worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices in faith in God and fervent love toward one another. So to have this liturgical mindset of this echoing back, this is about what Christ is doing for his church. That is going to take time to teach to the quote-unquote outsider. Just as you would expect 
when, for example, you know, if you bring somebody to a football game who has never seen a football game, right? Let's say you, uh, you know, you, you meet a friend who's from Europe uh, and you bring them to an American football game and they're expecting to see what we call a soccer game. And so they sit down to watch a football game and they say, this is not at all what I expected. And it's going to take time to teach them. But you wouldn't expect the entire stadium and the entire football game to be redevised in order to meet the needs of this one outsider. So also with the divine service, we understand that the outsider isn't going to get it, that at first it is going to sound mysterious, it is going to feel awkward, it might even come across as quote-unquote offensive. And yet, if you can simply say to them, you know what, just focus on the word, and if the word rings true, then we can teach you why all of these customs and things of that nature, because all of the customs echo back the great truth, right? Every single little detail echoes back the great truth. And we won't, we won't have time to go through all of these little details, but one that I like to point out just to show how much we think about these things is that even the way in which a pastor turns sometimes has meaning to it, that yeah, you know, throughout the whole service, when I'm facing the altar, I will turn over my right shoulder to face the congregation, and then I will turn back to the altar over the same shoulder until we get to the benediction. And then at the benediction, as I turn over my right shoulder to the congregation, I will then complete that circle, not back to my left, but continuing to my right. And just in that visual aid, that visual aid reminds the people that the service of Christ to his people is complete. The circle is full, and with a full circle, everything is complete. And those little tiny visual aids all throughout the divine service, they teach, they instruct, they echo. That's what the liturgical life is all about, is constantly pointing to Jesus and his promises, and the liturgy then keeping all of our attention focused on word and sacrament. So just as you would not change the quote-unquote customs and ceremonies of a football game, all right? Can you imagine how irate football fans would be if we said, you know what, we just decided that we're not going to do a coin toss, uh, or uh, we just decided that we're not going to have an opening kickoff anymore. They would be irate. They would say, wait a second, you are taking away from football what essentially belongs to football. That's part of what makes football football, right? In the same way, then, when you start to dumb down the richness of the liturgy and the divine service, because you want people to quote-unquote get it, you actually rob them of the opportunity to learn it. And you make the insiders, in a sense, frustrated because they know they are missing out on the richness that is theirs, just as you know uh, those avid football fans know that they are missing out on the richness of all the football customs when there's no coin toss or opening kickoff or whatever. So it's not to say that you can't play the football game without the coin toss. Uh, I suppose you could. And it's not to say that we need to, in a sense, legalistically retain every little element of our customs or else we will not benefit. That's not what we're saying at all. But what we are saying is that this type of worship, this understanding that we are echoing back what God has taught us, what God has handed down to us, and in that echoing back, he is teaching us and pointing us to his word and sacraments for our forgiveness, for our strength, for our sustenance to go back out into daily life. That is something worth cherishing and worth holding on to. And we need not 
be apologetic about that before the world. I was one time, uh, just recently, I was having a conversation about the idea of Lutheran universities or other agencies dumbing down their chapel services for students who don't understand Lutheranism. For example, uh, Baptist students or whatever that might expect American revivalism of some sort or a seeker-sensitive service decision for Jesus. And when the person was worried that the Lutheran chapel service might not reach out to the Baptist or take into consideration their heartfelt needs, I responded by saying, what Baptist university makes their service more liturgical for Lutheran students? Can you imagine being a Lutheran student and going to a university like Oral Roberts and saying, I demand that you do the high liturgy for me? They would say, no, no, that's not who we are. In the same way, we as Lutherans can be proud of and joyful of that which is not just ours as quote-unquote German Lutherans, but it's ours as heirs of the richness of that pattern of sound words that has been handed down for 2,000 years. And as we study the liturgy, as you get a chance in your congregations to study the liturgy, and you start finding out that all of these different detailed portions are 1,600 years old, 1,300 years old. In fact, I think, I think the very newest one is actually the choice of the 51st Psalm as always being the offertory, create in me a clean heart. I believe that didn't happen until about the 17th century or the 1700s. But that doesn't mean there wasn't always an offertory. It was just that they used different psalms. And then Psalm 51 came as the one established psalm around the 1700s or so. But that's the latest innovation in what we have in, for example, Divine Service Setting 3. Whereas things like the Kyrie come from the 5th century and the Kyrie itself was even seen as early as the 3rd century, but it was formalized in the 5th and 6th centuries, especially by Gregory the Great. Uh, you know, you've got other parts of the liturgy, for example, the preface to communion, in which it is, you know, the pastor says, lift up your hearts, we lift them unto the Lord. It is meet and right so to do. That comes all the way from the 1st or 2nd century. I mean, that, that is ancient in terms of the history of the church. Now, the argument will be made, and it's a proper argument ancient does not always equal good, and that is true. We don't want to adopt things of the early church heretics and say just because it's old, we adopt it. But this is all the more reason that I pointed out at the top of the hour. These things have been so carefully studied, and we have such a rich, rich library of resources as confessional Lutherans for saying we have every reason to rejoice in these things because they've been very carefully critiqued, they've been very faithfully handed down, and we can rejoice in studying the richness of the liturgy is ours. So yes, there is something to be learned in the liturgical elements. Yes, there is something that is going to sound like a learning curve for outsiders. We absolutely recognize that, and we admit that. There's something mysterious about what is going on here, and therefore, why should we expect people to be able to pick up on it immediately, right? Just as we say of our own children who've been growing up in the church from their infant baptism, that they still need to be educated in what this means. Just as we say it of lifelong Lutherans who maybe have, have known the liturgy for so long that they've grown a little bit complacent to it and see it as simply a traditionalism rather than loving the ceremonies and customs as that which faithfully teaches and hands down the faith that points to and depends upon word and sacrament for the forgiveness of sins and the strengthening of faith. So this is why we teach. 
we teach it over and over and over again. In my congregation, I've been here 14 years. I've already taught on the liturgy in sort of long, uh, you know, months long courses. I've already done that two or three times in 14 years, just to constantly be reminding people, we do not want to fall into a traditionalism or if you will, a dead orthodoxy of the liturgy. We want to always cherish what we have in these ceremonies and customs that have been handed down so that we don't have to treat them as a form of legalism, right? You treat it as a form of legalism when your heart isn't set on it. When you say, you know what, I, I don't really care for this, but this is what we have to do because that's what makes us Lutheran. No, that's not what makes us Lutheran. What makes us Lutheran is word and sacrament. What makes us Lutheran is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. That's what makes us Lutheran. And so uh, we don't hold on to the liturgy for this German Lutheran traditionalism, but rather for the rich theology that it echoes back and it weakly confesses. Indeed, in some ways, the best teacher of what is going on in the liturgy is actually the liturgy itself. If you'll just patiently study it, and therein you can you know, note all the elements of the Catechism's Confession of Pure Doctrine. Um, I mentioned that you know, visitors will come in and they will oftentimes be at best awkward, sometimes even offended. And as I get a chance to meet with the visitors, perhaps before the service, or if not before the service, certainly in the greeting line after the service, I tell them all the time, the sights and sounds might seem odd, just pay close attention to the words and you'll quickly gain an appreciation for the rest of it. And once you know it, of all of Calvary's new members, and I can only use my one congregation as an example of what I think is probably also seen out there in America, that of all of Calvary's new members in the last five years, the vast majority are former American evangelicals who were at first quite offended by the liturgy. That was their initial reaction. Uh, they walked in, they were offended by the crucifix hanging on the wall. They were offended by a pastor claiming the right to be able to forgive sins. They were offended by all of the customs and ceremonies that point us to the call to repentance, the free forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. They were offended by it. And notice what that means they were also offended by. They were offended by the theology that is confessed there, and which is the theology of the small catechism. And yet, as we taught them all that theology that is so well captured in the small catechism, that theology of the sinner in need of a savior, that theology of the Ten Commandments condemning our sin, and yet us having a God who created, redeemed, and sanctifies us, and therefore teaches us law gospel in daily living, those first three chief parts of the catechism, as they learned those, then they also learn to appreciate the sacraments, the secondary chief parts of the catechism. And as they learned that, and as they were struck by the pure doctrine and learned to see past the surface and into the deep treasures of the liturgical life, now it is those former American evangelicals, actually, who I think love the liturgy even more than our lifelong Lutherans. Because as lifelong Lutherans, sadly, we can sometimes become complacent with the treasure that is ours. And we can sometimes forget that, sadly, not all people get this beautiful treasure of customs and ceremonies that point us to word and sacrament, point us to and grant us and lead us to, if you will, the word and the sacrament that grant us right there and then the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus and bestow upon us all the riches that flow from the cross. 
So as we get into, and as we finish up this hour, and as we sort of take an overview look of the liturgy in this final hour next week, this, I think, is the great joy of studying this over and over again, is just seeing how rich is the theology within the divine service and in the ceremonies and customs that we have. And that's not something that you and I will be able to necessarily cover in one hour in terms of each of the little detailed sections. But I think we can go through it with enough of an overview or a detailed enough overview where people can take these illustrations that we'll use in that final hour and they can dig deeper into that and say, I have great reason to cherish the liturgy, not in a defensive posture of liturgical legalism, but in a, in a rejoicing posture, one that says, here are great ceremonies and customs that don't try to entertain me. They simply are constantly echoing to me and keeping me focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified once upon the cross and now weakly keeping his promise to save, not only save the lost, but therefore also to serve his church. And that's the joy that is ours each and every Sunday, is that we as beggars can come and we can be served by God himself in the Holy Word and the precious sacrament as he says, here is my word, here is my body, here is my blood. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear, take, eat, take, drink. This is his service to us. And we have the great privilege of being beneficiaries of it each and every week. As you were talking there, I found myself reflecting upon the fact that I have two toddlers at home and how often in teaching them to grow up and how to eat at a table, how to act with one another and with other people around and things like that. How often I find myself echoing myself, you know, and my parents, what I learned from them, right? And then I want my children to echo it back to me. I mean, just thinking of sitting at the table, right? So that we just don't have chaos at the dinner table every night and things like that, right? You know, that you just repeat this over and over again. And do they get it all right away? No. But as they live in it, and as we go through it every night, right, and we say, you know, this is how you use your spoon, and you don't throw your spoon at your sister, you don't put it down your drink cup, you know, all those crazy things that all parents know and endure and so forth, they begin to get it. And they start even just understanding the words that we use. How do we teach our children our language? We just speak to them. And they start picking it up little by little. And Everything that you were laying out there in terms of the liturgy and how we grow into it and learn it and so forth, I just, I think that that's a beautiful image of how we grow up and learn anything in life made beautiful in our children. So I echo especially what you said there in terms of anyone coming into the church. This is what we do with our own children. We just let them live in it. And I often say, you know, there's a lot of People can get offended if you don't have a children's message and things like that. I think it's important to teach the children and that we help them grow into this and so forth. But I often say the best children's message we have is the liturgy itself. As they echo those words week after week, they grow into it. And so, you know, I myself, I meet with the children before church and so forth to give them some instructions, something to listen for, pay attention to. And as we repeat that year after year, they grow into it. So did you have any thoughts that you wanted to respond on that just with a minute or so here left before we leave that? I know you have more children than I do, but that's what I was thinking as you were talking there. I appreciate your comments. Uh, you're right with my six kids. It certainly brings in and you get all these images rushing in about teaching children and teaching them to just uh, live in this. 
And the word choice that I like to use for folks in helping them understand is that we simply desire to dwell here, right? Now, have you ever noticed there's no clocks in our Lutheran sanctuaries? There's no urgency. There's no sense of time. We simply live in, we'll get into this next week, we simply live in this divine hour, this escape from all of the problems of the world out there. We get to step foot into this divine hour with no sense of accomplishing anything for God, but to simply dwell and just to dwell with Christ without any urgency, any worry about what time it is, no real purpose to accomplish anything, but just to dwell with Jesus and just to be at his feet and just to be fed by him and to simply rest with Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. And this is the joy that we get to teach our children and to teach all those who might be inquisitive and come into our doors. Absolutely. And as we seek to teach that, then that's what we'll pick up next week as we wrap up our Catechized Life series here. We'll talk about how the liturgy itself then and its customs and its practices then teach and echo our Christian faith. And so that's what we'll dig into next week and wrap up our Catechized Life series with our catechist, Pastor Mark Vestal. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. Thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.